On this week's episode, we take a look at the 1962 VFL season. Some boom recruits debut for the Cats and the Saints, and both injure themselves in their debuts. The league acquires some important land. Len Smith is unhappy at Fitzroy. Hawthorne suffer from the Premiership hangover. Coleman's coaching takes the next step, and the finals are steeped in controversy. All this and more coming up after our song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmats To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast. Uh, we are the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league uh, with no real qualifications. Uh, we've got lots of books and a thirst for knowledge and a desire to relive the glory days of our teams. Uh, we're looking at 1962. It is the Tim and Charlie show again today. <laughs> Those glory days are here. How are you, Timmy? I'm, I'm good, mate. Good. You? Feeling? Yeah, good. Happy to be here, as always. Yeah. Yeah. We don't often ask us, ask each other that. No, in the we show. don't. We don't. Are you okay? Yeah, no, no I'm it's okay. Good. Yeah. It's good to check in every once in a while. Uh, the Bombers have just signed uh, Zachy Merritt into a, a big deal, so I'm happy. Looking okay. And, uh, you're happy ish. The D's are 10 and 2. I'm feeling very good. I'm over the loss on the weekend. Yeah. We, have to, we have to move on. This is what happens. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, I can deal. Um, so we're talking about 1962. We're you know creeping our way into the 60s now. We are. And let's start with a bit of history. Yes. So <laughs> um, the hit song in 62, the one I chose was Johnny O'Keefe, a homegrown classic. I'm ca- I'm counting on you, which was number one in Australia for three weeks. I oh, love it. Let's have a listen to uh, to that while you tell us some news. All right. So yes, as you said, the Beatles did get big next year. There was a, there was a little something about them this year though, uh, but. Uh, about them releasing their first um, single. Yes. Yes. So, we, but we've got on the 2nd of March, we've got Wilt Chamberlain uh, scoring 100 points in one a single NBA game on the 2nd of March. Unbelievable. Yeah. 100-point game. On the 9th of April, we had the 34th Academy Awards. Uh, West Side Story won Best Picture. And timely because they're releasing a new version of West Side Story this year. Yeah. This year or maybe next. Um, On the 16th of April, Bob Dylan, 20, premiered his song Blowing in the Wind in New York City. Uh, On the 17th of June, we had Brazil beating Czechoslovakia 3-1 to win the 1962 FIFA World Cup. That's right. Not Slovakia, not the Czech Republic was when they were together. Uh, on the 12th of July, we had the Rolling Stones making their debut at uh, London's Marquee Club, uh, opening for Long John Baldry. Oh, yeah. So, very similar timelines, aren't they? On the 5th of August, Marilyn Monroe passed away, uh, which was officially ruled a probable suicide. So, who knows what that meant. Hmm. On the 25th of September, Sonny Liston knocked out Floyd Patterson uh, two minutes into the first round for the Boxing World title in Chicago. Uh, Floyd Patterson, one of my all-time favourite uh, world champs. Very quiet guy. Liked him a lot. Uh, and on the 1st of October, we had Johnny Carson, who took over as the permanent host of The Tonight Show, and he holds that post for 30 years. 
big. We uh, had without dates, we've got uh, Even Stevens winning the Melbourne Cup. We've also got at the uh, British Empire and Commonwealth Games, which are held this year in Perth, we had Australia winning 38 gold medals. And in tennis news, we had Rod Laver winning the Australian, the French, the Wimbledon, and the US Open. Oh, grand so that So this is, well, I'm, I'm worried that I did, I tried to check into it. Now, the Grand Slam is that, right? Yeah. But it says that he only did the Grand Slam in 67. So I was a bit confused. Maybe. I thought he did it twice, but it's calendar year, I'm not sure. Okay. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's not how they run it. I'm, I don't know. But yeah, there you go. So he did a calendar year Grand Slam, as far as I'm aware. But if I'm wrong, please <laughs> let me know. Uh, would you like to hear about some people who were born? Yeah, just before you do oh, as well. Oh, yes. Thinking like Liston beats Patterson, that's the lyric in We Didn't Start the Fire. So oh, that's right. We can kind we of just start playing that for our history section, couldn't we? That'd be good, just a decade each time. Uh, so we've got... A few, just sticking with the Australians, as yeah. usual now. Yeah. On the 23rd of January, Richard Roxburgh. Yep. Actor. Uh, actor, writer, producer, director. <laughs> the 22nd of Feb, Steve Irwin, the, yeah. the wildlife expert, yeah. who died in 2006. Unbelievable that it was 15 years ago. Uh, the 26th of April, a bit of a footy flavour here, Trevor Marmalade <laughs> was born. On the 17th of September, we had Baz Luhrmann, uh, and on the t- 26th of September, Steve Monaghetti, oh, the yeah. long-distance runner. So there we go. There you go, some good names. All right, so here we are, 1962. Let's get stuck into some league news oh, first. Oh, yes. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. Um, so having abandoned live telecasts of the last quarters of the VFL matches at the end of 1960 and having forbidden Saturday evening replays during the 61 season, the VFL agreed to allow television stations to broadcast one hour of replays each Saturday evening, providing no more than 30 minutes of one match in that broadcast. Um, a separate okay. arrangement was made for the grand final, mm-hmm. for a replay of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, on Anzac Day... I like it. So do you want to say something? No, no, I like it. I think that's good, yeah. On Anzac Day, a representative match was played at the MCG between the Victorian team who participated in the 61 Carnival and a team representing the best of the rest of the league. Ah. The rest of the league won 13-7-85 to the Carnival team 10-17-77 in front of a crowd of 17,068. Okay. Really odd. I don't know why Isn't they did that. It must have been to try and raise money. Yeah. Uh, in June, the Big V thrashed Western Australia by 102 points. Doug Wade kicked 10 goals. Jeez. Massive. And they beat us in the carnival last season, so that might have been a bit of a bit of, yeah, bit of a yeah. revenge match. Love that. Um, and then huge news. In September, the VFL purchased land to the east of Melbourne. Ah, yes. As Mulgrave, upon which later they built a VFL park. The area was chosen because of it was believed the uh, that the effects of urban sprawl and the proposed building of the South East Freeway, or the Monash Freeway as we know it now, uh, would become the demographic centre of Melbourne. That's a pretty good foresight from, yeah. from the AFL, of the VFL there. I mean, yeah, but... No, but yes. Did you, did you yes, but there? no, no. No, I never went. You never went to VFL. Oh, no. It was not great. <laughs> like, I mean, we, we've been there because the Hawks Museum is there. Yes, so yeah, you know yeah. Where it is. yeah. It's just hard to get to. Yeah, it and is. Like the, the key for those places is to have public transport, train. You need a train station. Yeah, everyone drives. Yeah, I mean, it's good because you could access, like, for Gippsland getting there, excellent. Because if you're a supporter in Gippsland, it's only an hour or two away and you can go to a game. Yeah. You're home in time for 
you know, the news. Yeah, it was never going to be the centre, but you would have thought, like, it. I mean, geez, it is, it is very much inner now rather than, yeah. Yeah, and the whole building of it, um, was because the AFL wanted to wrestle control of the, the ground because MCG held them yes. hostage because they were you know the, they were playing so much money to play the game at the MCG. Yeah. But the, if we know if the the league controlled the grounds, then they'd make more money. Yeah. And there's a real shift towards this later in the 70s and 80s. Okay. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a podcast by the people who did the, the 93. That was the season, the greatest season. They do one focusing on Waverley, specifically the 91 Grand Final there, but kind oh, of going yeah. into the history of it and. How the AFL used it. Nice. All right, Charlie, let's get stuck into that ladder. Let's do it. Work our way up. So, bottom of that ladder, the first rung, if you will, uh, sitting in 12th position with three wins, 15 losses, and a percentage of 74.4, we have South Melbourne. South Melbourne, all right. So, So, in 62, we had. New coach. Yes, we did. We had our captains still the same, Bobby Skilton from last year, a new coach in Noel McMahon. Mm, yeah, the great man from Melbourne. Yes. Former captain? Yes. Yeah, yeah, captain. yeah. Because yeah. um, remember, Essendon, like, they, they tried to sign, sound him out to replace uh, Dickie Reynolds. That's and right. And kind of backfired. Some debutants were Neville Forge, Jim Pumphrey, Pat Trethoen, John Fogarty, who decided to play a bit of football before joining Creedence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> uh, Terry McGee and Stuart McGee, uh, Stuart McGee being born in Glasgow, uh, in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, and finally, uh, Castle, Trevor Castlehow. Great name. Great name. Uh, and the talented Indigenous ruckman Elkin Riley, who was an Aliwara man. Oh, nice. Okay. The, uh, the first Indigenous player to play with South Melbourne. In 62? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, some news from South Melbourne. They had some new rooms that were opened at Lakeside Oval in mid-July. Big exciting news there. In round one against the Roos, Bobby Skilton led the Swans from the front, kicking five goals in the opening half. Uh, South led by as much as four goals twice in the game before the Roos staged a big comeback and actually took the lead late in the last quarter. However, the Swans were able to kick another goal and a point to earn a one-goal win over the Kangaroos, although they lost Frank Johnson to a knee injury. Ah, in round two, it was a big lakeside pennant showdown. <laughs> only, only a few seasons of it left as well. Uh, the Swans trailed early before they retook the lead in the second quarter. And the game was tight, but rover Bob Munn kicked the sealer in the dying minutes to lead the Swannies to a 12-point win. One of their many lakeside pennants. Uh, but look, the Pies smashed the Swans the next week, and this kicked off a run of 13 straight losses. Oh, The worst was round six when they played the Demons. They kicked one goal for the day. Really? Of course it was Bobby Skilton. Yes. Yeah. Well, do we know when it was in the game? Uh, we don't know, but no. their score of one goal, 11, was their lowest ever score against the Demons. One eleven. geez. So they had a few opportunities. They just couldn't yeah. get it in. Yeah. Uh, in fact, their only other win for the season came in round 16. They beat Fitzroy by 25 points at Brunswick Street, o- Street Oval. Uh, the Swannies' teamwork was too much for the Lions, and it was their first win at the ground since 1947. Um, although for some reason the board looked upon the season as a turning point for the club. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, which way? Yeah, their their win against Fitzroy as well um, was their highest score for the season. So interestingly enough, the Swans had both the highest and lowest scores for the season. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, which has only ever happened twice before in 1916 and 1918. 
So a long time, yeah, yeah. which it was a time where there were they were well, lower scores in general. There so. was four teams in 1916. Yeah. And, and I think oh, yeah, two of course. more in 1918. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so in a 12-team competition, this is pretty impressive. Yeah. I, I, this is only up to this point. I haven't looked further. No, but you but, yeah. can't imagine it. I don't think no. so, no, but you never know. Yeah. Um, who I'm going to guess Bobby Skilton probably won their best and fairest. And you are absolutely correct. Did he lead I the goal kicking? I think it's a pretty fair one. Yes, he did also lead their goal kicking with 36. There you go. Yeah, so <laughs> unbelievable. So miserable year for the Swannies, unfortunately. Yeah. It's their first, first spoon for quite a while. Yeah. Well. Uh, so taking us up to 11th on the ladder now, we have... Um, we just go slightly up from South Melbourne to North Melbourne. Yeah, nice. yeah, interesting there. So with one more win, four wins, 14 losses, and a lower percentage of 73.1, unfortunately, we had uh, for North, uh, captain being Alan Aylett again for the second year, and coach Wally Carter. All right, so their president, Alex Marr, quit 16 days into a new season. That's a, always a great sign for a mm. club. They Love the stability. <laughs> they didn't actually get their first win until round nine, which came against the reigning premiers, Hawthorne at uh, Arden Street. Hey. Their tight defence was the key to success. They led all day, slightly, but lost the lead late. And in a tense final quarter, John Dugdale kicked the winning goal a minute before the siren to give the Roos a one-point victory. The next win was round was two rounds later in round 11, taking down the more fancied St Kilda team by 10 points. Um at Junction Oval yep. Aylett kicked five Oof. they then backed this up with a 49 point thrashing of the Swans at home holding the Swans to just five goals for the day Doug Dale beating the team by himself he kicked five as himself oh really yeah. love that uh, round 15 was their final win of the season which was a come from behind victory over the Lions at Brunswick Street Oval they held the Lions to one point in the final quarter while adding three of themselves Doug Dale with four but it was another poor year for the club and after years attached to this club Wally Carter has retired at season's end that as was well that was bad to say so after five years in charge as well, coach five years in this stint is going oh yes there. but going all the way back to 48 yeah and before that he was even he was under 19s and reserves coach mm. as well so he'd been there f- for a long time yeah yeah, so, well, there you go. So, uh, do you want to have a guess? Who was their best and fairest in 62? Uh, probably Aylett. No. No, was... Aylett would have led their goal kicking. No, he didn't. Oh, really? It's the other name. Dugdale, of course. Yes. Sorry. Um, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, Johnny Dugdale with 44. Their best and fairest was Bill Sarong. Oh, nice. Yeah. From Collingwood. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah. So, moving up the ladder to 10th place gets us to Fitzroy. Uh, with five wins, 13 losses, and 79.9%. This year, uh, again coached by Len Smith um, and captained by Owen Abrahams, taking over from Alan Gale. There you go, Butch. Uh, some debutantes, Colin Sleep, Bob Beatty. they got Brian Beers from Collingwood and Ruckman Norm Brown. Um, now, Len Smith tried to quit pre-season. He didn't want to coach the, the Lions anymore. Well, also with his health and everything, I'm assuming. Oh, a li- not so much that. Of it. At this, not, not so much at this stage. Um, there was a board member by the name of Oliver Hornsby who kept butting in on decisions he was making. Ah, um, okay. And insisting, he insisted on sitting with Len during games and um, he... Just Len didn't want him there. Like, you know what Norm Smith was like. I was about to say, Smith, so, Smith brothers and, and, yeah. So constantly being questioned on what you're doing and game plans and player selection. So he didn't want it. So he wanted to quit. The committee wouldn't let him. Yeah. So he stayed on and coached this year. But Wouldn't it be fr- – like, but having someone above you in that position, about who's 
in, mo- in most likelihood, not a great footballer. Or yeah. doesn't, to be sitting there going, oh, I think we should do this. You'd just be sitting there going, please shut up. Yes. Like, just leave. Yeah. yeah. Their first win was round four. Uh, when everything finally clicked for them. They smashed the Kangaroos by 65 points. They had loose men running wild from the start. Uh, They flashed the ball from one end to the other with bewildering speed. Uh, Graham Campbell, Owen Abrahams and Russell Crowe with three goals each. Rusty, good on him. He's he's having a good year. They beat the South Melbourne Swans by 21 points with a four-goal burst midway through the last quarter to beat them. Uh, Experience and stamina were the telling factors and Kevin Murray was best on ground. Round six was a 23-point win over the reigning Premier's Hawthorne. I mean, it's interesting hearing Hawthorne beaten by all these low teams. Mm, it? it certainly is. Um, Lyons kicked only three goals in the opening three quarters, but Len Smith threw the magnets around at three-quarter time. He moved Owen Abrahams to the centre, and the team found another gear and slammed on eight goals in the last quarter. Uh, John Carmody with four of those, in fact. Vernon and Murray were best on ground. Round eight was the Battle of the Smiths. Oh, yes, okay. And so, Len- what, what are our... What are our numbers at this stage? There's been a draw. Hold on. Three wins, three losses, and two ties. So massive. Okay, so there's, it's in the balance. Well, hold on. Okay, sorry. Three wins to the Demons. Oh, hold on. Three wins, two... Oh. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> really thrown Len, out. Len, Len wins this one. <laughs> the Lions were much more accurate. They kicked 12-4 to the Demons, 9-20. Their chubby little rover, Wally Clark, produced a lightning burst of four goals in the third quarter as the Lions took control of the game. Although the Ds did retake the lead, Graham McKenzie and Kevin Murray helped the Lions to kick two goals into the wind, and they won by two points. Um, with eight minutes to go, a Fitzroy youth jumped up and rang the bell. A youth? A youth. Unbelievable. Uh, but the game continued, and the Lions soldiered on um, to win that game. Uh, number 97 on Kapita Carter's list, which meant that the eight games the two teams had played between 58 and 62, the Lions had the best record of any team against the Demons. Three wins, three losses, two ties. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So at the end of this game, it was basically even. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In Huge. Fact, was, yeah. Their final win of the year was in round 17 when their pace throughout was too much for the Hawks, who fought valiantly through John Peck. The Hawks hit the front early on, but the Lions regained it through the work of Owen Abrahams and Brian Beers. As the Lions again beat Hawthorne by eight points this time, little did they know that following this win, the club would only win one of their next 37 games. Oh, my. Really? Yep. Jeez, oh, you'd, you'd really celebrate it if you knew, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Less than two weeks after the end of the season, Len, Len Smith tendered his resignation, citing the lack of support and poor recruiting to the seconds and thirds support staff. So nothing to do with, with his health, even though he ha- he's had a couple, well, a couple of heart attacks? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So, Kevin, Kevin Murray, best and fairest? Ah, uh, well, let me tell you. It was... I don't think it was, actually. Hang on. It was... Owen Abrams? No, you're right. It was Kevin Murray. <laughs> and who kicked the most goals? Um... Pretty hard one to pick this one. Wally Clark with Wally. 21, so low. Which is the lowest for Fitzroy since... Chris Keenan kicked 21 in 1900. There you go. Yeah. 1900. Yeah. The lowest, lowest amount of goals a player's kicked for Fitzroy in, what's that, 62 years. Unbelievable. So moving up the ladder to ninth position. Ninth position, Timothy. I'm just going to say that again, ninth position. Because we have Hawthorne in ninth. What did they, where did they come last year? First. They First. Won, they won the whole damn Exactly. Thing. What is going on down at Glenferry? So, uh, yes. 
Five wins, 13 losses. So the same as Fitzroy, just a slightly better percentage of 86.6%. They were coached again by uh, Jack Kennedy, captained by Graham Arthur. Yeah. Yep. Um, they had a big debutant as well uh, by the name of Delicate Des Dixon. Delicate Des. Yeah. So, Kaz, can you tell us a little bit about him, please? Des Delicate Dixon, a feared and ferocious Ruckman defender who was directed from Golden Square to Hawthorne by Kevin Curran. Dixon um, had been playing senior football with Golden Square since uh, he was 15, and for the life of me, I have no idea what Golden Square is, but I'll look that up. Um, he arrived at Glen Ferry weighing 17 stone, but John Kennedy's fitness program trimmed three stone in nine weeks. Try that. Uh, in his first reserves game, he was king hit from behind and vowed to play the same way. Ooh, changed man. He was subsequently reported by three umpires on the same day. He created such mayhem uh, that as Graham Arthur arrived uh, for the senior game, people came up to him to complain um, about the newcomer's behaviour. So that's a little bit on Des Delicate Dixon. A play on words there. All right, um, Brian Edwards, best on the ground in the grand final, left the club following the flag win. I think he moved for for teaching purposes. Did a Costanza. Just went out on a high. Yeah, but he'll be back. We haven't seen the last of him. Ah, okay. Um, in round one at the Western Oval, the Doggies avenged their grand final defeat by uh, beating the Hawks. And the Hawks kicked their lowest score in two years, which was 47 points. And to make matters worse, the Hawks also lost Gary Young to an injury. Playing stocks suffered another blow when Graham Cooper was suspended for eight matches after round two for kicking in a very physical match against Collingwood at Glenferry. Uh, John Winnicky was knocked out in the first half and had to be physically restrained from heading back onto the ground after the long break. Oh, God. The Hawks had good wins, though, by 12 points after unfurling the premiership flag from 1961 oh. against Collingwood. Um, the side then lost to Geelong and Carlton before knocking off the winless Tigers by just four points. Two more losses followed, firstly to a struggling Fitzroy and then to St Kilda. At two and five, the Hawks already looked in strife. In round eight, the Hawks gave a yelp by knocking off the undefeated Bombers by 17 points at Glenferry Oval. Mort Brown, Ron Nolder and David Parkin all starred in this game. Hey, okay. Uh, using physical strength in a wet and muddy game, Hawthorne threw everything at the unbeaten Dons and came up with a remarkable win. They followed this sterling effort by losing to the bottom place and previously winless North Melbourne <laughs> by a point in the next round. <laughs> a win over South Melbourne in round 10 was followed by five consecutive losses and the season was well and truly gone. A win over Richmond and two more losses rounded out a very disappointing premiership defence. Um, and one of those strange seasons, Hawthorne did not play a game at the MCG. For the entire year. Entire year. That's so weird. So I wonder where they, they must have played Melbourne at home and that was the only time they played Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's a very shameful year for yeah. the Hawks. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll take it. Yeah. I think it's up there with the worst premiership defences of all time. I think Essendon in... 24, maybe. There's, I know one of the Essendon teams was terrible the year after one. They won it. Well, it's how I, f I mean, I'm thinking Hawthorne 08. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, they almost made They finished ninth. Yeah. So did these guys. Yeah, but. Yeah, I know. That was yeah. once one of the finals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and Melton, we, we did that, didn't we, in 1900? And then. But I will. Well, you shouldn't have even won the grand final in 1900. That's right. <laughs> Great times. Uh, so, moving up the ladder. Well, hold on. Let's oh, yeah. Leading goal kicker. Oh, sorry. Yes. Leading goal kicker was John Peck with 38. Of Best and fairest. Graham Arthur. Graham Arthur. Yeah. Well done. 
Thank you. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so moving up that ladder to seventh, uh, eighth position, I should say, we have Richmond. Mm. So Richmond sitting uh, on, again, five wins, 13 losses, 90.5%. They were this year ca- coached by Des Rowe for the second year and uh, captained by Ron Branton for the third. This is, a, a, you know, they're getting better. The last three seasons they've gone 12th, 10th, 8th, so they're, they're moving up the ladder slowly. Yeah. I mean, Do you want it to happen a bit faster than this, though? If I was coaching Richmond, yeah, but as a supporter of football, no. <laughs> Especially know what Richmond's like at the moment. The less time they're not in the finals, the better. The, better, yeah. Sorry, the more time they're not in the finals, the better. Um, one debutante was Wally Hillis. Um, Graham Richmond was, support, was appointed secretary and insisted the club develop a positive approach to running the team. Okay. You know, things have been going up and down for the Tigers. They haven't made finals since, I think, 47, so... Yeah. Trying to scrape things together. Ron Brandon, the captain led by example, riding high at the two as the two-time best and fairest winner. Uh, took the Tigers until round seven for them to win the first game, which was a 43-point win over North Melbourne at Punt Road. The Tigers' defence restricting North to only one goal in the whole opening half. Ted Langridge was the star, the star there, kicking five. The round nine game was described as a game of lost opportunity as Richmond and South played a very hard, close game. The Tigers' Ron Serich worked hard and Bill Barrett kept Bobby Skilton pretty quiet early on. Ron Branton was the hero who saved the day as the Tigers won by one goal. Round 11, they surprised Fitzroy at Punt Road Oval with uh, Langridge leading the team in a dour battle. Richmond's determination was greater than that of Fitzroy's at Tigers by 10. In round 10, sorry, in round 12, before the match against the Demons, the Tigers' theme song, we're from Tigerland, debuted for the first time, although they didn't get to sing, get, sing it after the match. Yeah. So if you remember, they'd, they'd written it. Oh, no, they, this was, must have been the first year they had this song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we talked about the alternate one they wrote last season. One that yes. Was to the tune of Waltzing Matilda. That's right. So they changed it around. Yeah. The Tigers took on the up-and-coming Saints in round 17, who got on top in the first quarter. However, led by full forward Ian Hayden, they kicked five goals for the Tigers and they took a commanding lead in the second quarter. Almost every player was involved in a huge brawl in the third quarter. The Tigers could only manage three points in the final quarter but held on to win by four points. Nice. Round 18 in their final match of the season, last game of Ron Branton led by example, dominating the play and helping Richmond power to a 19-point win. Um... Yeah, an improved season for them. Last gamer, you say? So Ron Branton retired at the end of this season? Yes, he did. Um, also of note was the winner of the club's, club's fourth, so the fourths, best and fairest, yeah. skinny speedster named Kevin Bartlett. Hey, okay. Yeah, a little skinny speedster. Yeah. I love that. So do you want to have a go at who was the best and fairest for them this year, Timmy? Um, probably Ron Branton. It was. Uh, and Ted Langridge was their higher goal leading goal kicker with 42 this year. So Ron Bratton, best and fairest in his final year. Yeah. That's a bit of a worry for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just uh, following up on that theme song, it was written in 1962. So the words of the song were penned by cabaret performer Jack Malcolmson mm-hmm. during a plane trip in 1962. Oh, okay. Yeah. The song is, the original is uh, called Row, Row, Row. But not like row row your boat. <laughs> no, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. So All right. They debuted that in '62, which is good. It's yeah. just going back. It's amazing. Like you said, you know, they haven't made finals since '47. It's it's crazy how quick you know how quickly you can you can create like quite a run or a, or a drought of things like that. Like we've obviously been talking about this every year, and you kind of 
don't realise those club don't think about those clubs that are con- consistently missing finals do you until it they gets to a certain make it. yeah and it gets to a certain point you're like geez they haven't made the final since like 37 or you know you think about it that way and like yeah okay so how they just limp along for such a long time and yeah. i mean we've all been there as supporters of clubs that do that for a little while yes yes we have <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing like how it can it just create like this momentum sort of creates about you know which is how are they going to turn it around and, and stuff like this. And the clubs that stay up there seem to just sort of stay yeah. up there as well. The ones like Carlton that just try and rush it every time and no wonder they're having to rebuild That's it. every four That's years. That's it. And you, but you do get desperate. After yeah. a certain point, you're just desperately trying to find your way out and not really playing the long game. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's all, always been the case, yeah. yeah. Um, just more on that theme song as well. So the, the guy who wrote it, Malcolmson, was a regular performer at Richmond's pleasant Sunday mornings, post-game wind-downs for players and officials. Um, and he offered to write the song um, on one condition that it was a bouncy song. Which it is. Yeah, so the following week, while in King Island to open a cabaret, Malcolmson began listing suitable songs he could set lyrics to. He started with about 20 and narrowed the choice down to row, row, row. And he wrote the lyrics on a plane back, adding the penultimate line, yellow and black, when he decided the ending lacked punch. Great. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, When he played it to the team before the next week's game, they jumped out of their chairs and roared like a tiger. (laughs) Love it. All righty. So you want to hear Comb 7th, Timothy? Tell me. It was Collingwood. Good to see him down there. Yeah. Nine wins, nine losses. So big jump from 8th to 7th there. Um. Nine wins, nine losses. That is a big jump here. Yeah. Four. Uh, four, four wins, yeah. 108.8... Sorry, no. 98.5%, I should say. So this year, coached by Fonz Kine again. Yep. And captained by Murray, Murray Wiedemann again. Fonz Kine's been there for a while, hasn't he? He certainly has. I'm looking here. Uh, he's been... He's. When did he take over? He took 49? over... 49? 50. In, he took over in 50. Yeah. So... 22 years Yeah, so at this stage. We're recording you know, a few days after Buckley's last game. Yes. And looking at that list, and I think Buckley's number five on that list. Yeah, well, and, it, it, and so one, it's Jock and Fonz, yeah, the top two. Yeah, I think, and then Lee Matthews and Mick Malthouse. Yeah. yeah. But no one, yeah, looking at... No one's, no one's beating that number yeah. one's or two spot. No. Yeah. Not at Collingwood. We we know Malthouse took over the amount of games, but if you look at how many seasons it took Mikhail to get there, like that's a whole different argument. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So some debutants for Collingwood: Ralph Rose, Des Steele, Bob Johnson, John Knox, and a big name in Des Tudnam. Hey, Kaz, tell us about Des. Okay. Des Tuttenham, one of the toughest competitors ever to pull on a pair of boots. Tuttenham originally was recruited from Ballarat and soon made a name for himself as a tear-through half-forward flanker with an unquenchable desire for victory. The red-headed Tuttenham won uh, Collingwood's best and fairest in 1963 and was club captain from 66-69. And again in 76, he was one of the greatest Collingwood on-field leaders and it was a tragedy for all concerned when he was stood down in 1970 because of a pay dispute. Tottenham was a great player in the engine room and was genuinely tough footballer. His greatest football disappointment uh, was captaining the Magpies to one point loss to St Kilda in the 1966 grand final, of course. So, Des Tottenham. 
So after a poor season, the seeds of discontent were starting to be shown, uh, which had started with some big delistings at the end of last year, which we talked about. Yes. Fonz Kind talked about, you know, bringing the club's fitness up to speed, uh, building stamina similar to that of Hawthorne. But the club started poorly with a first-round loss to St Kilda, who had not won at Victoria Park since 1919. Oh, killer. Their first win wasn't until round three against South Melbourne. The Pies smashed the Swans by 44 points. Michael Bone with four, Errol Hutchinson with three. Uh, Round five was a strong win. They travelled down to Geelong and took care of them in a slog. And then they made it back-to-back with a win over the enemy in Carlton, taking control in the second quarter, with Wiedemann leading brilliantly and David Norman and Bob Johnson kicking four each. How many body Bob Johnsons are playing? Yeah, I know. It's like Josh Kennedy's. Um, They had good wins over the bottom teams between round eight and ten in North Fitzroy and Richmond. In round 13, they finally took it up to the fitter Hawthorne team, who were fatiguing as the season went on. The Pies ran rings around them and won by 39 points. Then round 14 was a thriller, a four-point win over South Melbourne at Victoria Park. Wiedemann again the hero with six huge marks, followed by six big goals. His last one was the the decisive goal, which he kicked after diving headlong for the mark. Uh, Collingwood were two games out of the four, and their season was all but over, and they lost the next three to really rule out finals. Here comes the big story for the season, though. Yeah. Around this time, Murray Wiedemann shocked Collingwood. I was about to say this. And the football world by deciding to combine his football career with a professional wrestling career. (laughs) It's so good. So, yeah, he hurt his shoulder, um, and he was recovering from an injury. Mm -hmm. And so so he... was induced to enter the uh, wrestling ring to bring publicity back to pro wrestling in Melbourne. Yeah, so Collingwood were very close to stripping the captaincy off him Yeah, because they didn't want him to injure himself. And he actually had to break character and say, you know, I'm probably not going to get hurt. This is not real. Yeah. Um, so Collingwood allowed him to get in the ring. However, as you said, it was more of a publicity stunt. Yep. Um, he was paired with an Italian-American veteran called Salvador Savoldi. Savoldi. Salvatore his tag, Savoldi. His tag team partner and generally he's put over by his opponents. Uh, while briefly serving its purpose in attracting publicity, it ultimately <laughs> resulted in little benefit to either the wrestling community or Wiedemann. What a way to finish. Uh, and there is footage of him wrestling the Zebra Kid on YouTube. The Zebra Kid. <laughs> yeah. I would have assumed he would have been the Zebra Kid being a Collingwood yeah, player. No, no. Love it. Um, so, yeah, final game of the season, they beat Footscray in front of a desolate crowd for only the second time in peacetime the Pies have missed finals four consecutive years. Hilarious. Who do you reckon was their best and fairest? Hmm. I don't know. Probably Wiedemann. There's none other than the Zebra Kid himself. <laughs> Murray Wiedemann. Yeah. And uh, lead, he was also their lead goal kicker with 48. 48. So, like, that's pretty good. What a year. Pro wrestling... <laughs> Lead goal like kicker. Finally, he'd done a Cyril Gove and done it on the same day. Oh, exactly. And won the title, won the belt or yeah. something on the same day. It would have been perfect. So moving up the ladder to sixth spot, we have uh, the Saints with also nine wins, nine losses, but a slightly better percentage of 108.8%. Yeah, so they've, you know, they've been up and about, up the top half of the ladder for the last few years. Yeah. Um, some big names in here. She's some debutantes. Ike Isley. Mm-hmm. Ross Oakley. Yes, okay. The boss, and Daryl Baldock. Yes, I was yeah, so I was about to say, co- uh, again, coached by Alan Jeans and captained by uh, Neil Roberts. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, Kaz, tell us a bit about Daryl Baldock before we go on. Yes, Tim, the Doc always will be remembered as captain of St Kilda's 1966 Premiership side and one of the greatest figures in the club's history. The Saints recruited Baldock from... 
Tasmanian club Latrobe, his first game against Collingwood created enormous interest as he already was rated as a superstar. Baldock <laughs> earlier had signed with Melbourne and South Melbourne and the Saints swooping as soon as the Suns hold uh, on him expired. He didn't let any of his judges down and he quickly established a reputation as a freakish champion uh, with the seeming ability to have the ball on a string. His ground skills were phenomenal and his courage legendary. And that's a little bit on Darren. John the Doc. Bulldog. So on Easter Monday, 42,000 fans trekked to Victoria Park for the round one clash against Collingwood, which we've already spoiled. Um, and look, Daryl Bulldog, everyone was keen to see him. Uh, it took him a while to get into the game, but he and Oswald lifted the Saints and helped them kick clear in the final quarter. In this game, Bill Stevenson kicked five and the Saints had a 25-point win. Um, their first since round two, 1919, and yes. only the second time ever. Yeah, it was, it, that's what it says here. Their, only, their second win at Victoria Park in 65 years. Never, <laughs> um, never beat them in the VFA there either. Unbelievable. Bulldog, oh, however, really? So even longer than that? Yeah, so bad news coming out of this game was Bulldog had fractured a foot, a bone in his foot, and would miss the next four matches. Oh. It's not a great way to start at your no. new club. Um, in torrential rain the following week, they went down to a determined swan side, although Stevenson kicked another three. Um, speaking of Stevenson, he had a day out against Fitzroy with seven, the team steamrolling the Lions from the opening bounce. In round four, Stevenson had five of the Saints' eight goals by half time. However, he took a big fall in the second half and damaged his knee and disappeared up the race. The Saints would lose by four points and Stevenson would only play one more game for the season. Oh, okay. So he's, yeah. he's, he's, I, mean, I think I've mentioned him already three or four times, and you know, he's done. Yeah. Um, Bulldog came back for round five against the Doggies, um, and then they had a win over the Tigers, but it was the round seven game at Hawthorne that drew much praise. He turned on a dazzling display in the centre half forward position, even drawing a pro applause from the home grandstand. Hey, that doesn't happen often. Saints beating the reigning premiers by 32 points. Uh, Stevenson came back for round nine against the Demons, but his legs collapsed in the last quarter, and as did the Saints. Uh, the Demons won, and Stevenson was done for the season. After losses to Geelong and North, the players held a meeting to scorch rumours of dissension within the club and then came out and beat the Magpies by 23 at Junction Oval, Ray McHugh with five. But it was Baldock who had also kicked five from centre-half forward, who was the star. The next round was another lakeside pennant and the Saints looked like losing another one. Yeah. Uh, with only three goals to three-quarter time, they trailed by 28 points. However, however, Charlie, Go in on. desperation, Alan Jeans threw Verdon Howe forward, a Brownlow medal fullback. Uh, and in the first two minutes, he had two goals. <laughs> His second goal, he kicked out of the stadium, which meant a nice clean ball had to be brought in, which really suited the Saints. The Saints kicked eight goals five in that last quarter to nothing to win by 17 points. Eight five to nothing. Yep, that is huge. So yep. the final score there, I've got it says eleven fourteen eighty to the same nine nine sixty three. Yep, huge comeback. Um, a six. I like that tactic of getting a clean ball as well. I'm not sure if that's what he was instructed to do, but that's yeah, quite just cheeky. Absolutely boot the yeah. boot it out. Yep. Yeah, genius. A six goal to three point second quarter against Fitzroy earned them a win the next week with future AFL CEO Ross Oakley kicking three. They finished the season on a high, beating the Hawks again with Bulldog kicking five, McHugh four, and Alan Morrow three. Despite not making the finals, the Saints seem to be playing with some consistency now. Yeah. You take it. Slow slow burn. Slow and you're happy burn. to watch that. Yep. Yeah. Um, did Stevenson lead the goal kicking? Did he do enough? He did not. Okay. He did not. Daryl Bulldog won. Okay. 
missing four games as well. 33, yep. so not huge, but yeah, balled up one with 33. He also won their best and fairest in his first year. Jeez. <laughs> huge. There you go. So moving up to fifth spot, just missing out on finals, we have the Tricolours, the Bulldogs. <laughs> Footscray are there with 11 wins, 7 losses and 108.5 as their percentage. Uh, captain coached again this year by Teddy Whitt. Right, well. Bill Harrington. Bill Harrington, okay. Murray Zushner. Z-E-U-S-C-H-N-E-R. Surely his nickname is Zeus. <laughs> You'd think so. And Niles Becker. Very, um... Sounds very sort of a European mm. list out in Footscray at the moment. Um, and also remember, Footscray also made the grand final last year, so both oh, yeah. grand finalists. Missing finals. I don't think that's happened since 45. That's a really good... Yeah, jeez. Huge. Um, round one, the Doggies got revenge on their grand final opponents from the year before at Witten Oval, kicking away in the second quarter to win by 33 points. And I always love it when those two, the two teams of the previous year's grand final play in round one. Yeah. It should be a thing. Carlton Richmond's rubbish. Yeah, I really I like it too. I think it's yeah, it's great. It gives you as the losing team something to like to really keep real, yourself up yeah. going for. Yeah, Merv Hobbs kicked four as the doggies smashed the Lions in round two. In round four, Hobbs kicked eight goals three against the Swans at Western Oval, and eight goals second quarter was all the difference. In round five, the doggies combined pace and a spirited teamwork to bamboozle the Saints and run out seventeen point winners. A concentrated onslaught of purposeful football by the doggies in the third term saw them kick six goals and end the Saints' hopes. Witten led the way with four. Round seven, Footscray adapted itself better in the mud and with teamwork and courage took a thirty-five point win over the Pies. Uh, the Pies couldn't match the doggies' determination to get the ball. The doggies' backline, led by John Gillard, was the difference. In round eight, the Tigers led the doggies. They were leading up until three-quarter time. I think they were up by about 19 points. Yeah. But with fresh legs of dog Bernie Dowling and half-forward Ken Duff, the Doggies put on six goals in the final quarter to win by 13. Beautiful. We got there. Uh, round 12, they started poorly and the Hawks came out with rough tactics. And it came to a head in the second quarter when the Doggies were forced into a showdown and began to tear into the attacks, which rattled the Hawks. The second quarter was a goal fest with 14 goals straight between the teams. Oh, massive. The dogs started to run out of steam, and in the last quarter, as the Hawks tried to come home, uh, but they ran out of time, the doggies by eight. Uh, they Dogs went win-loss in their last six games. They win-loss, win-loss, win-loss. Uh, in round 16, the loss to the Saints made it unlikely they would make finals. But then round 17, they smashed the top of the table bombers and lost to the Pies in the final round. Okay. Yeah, so it's a disappointing year for doggies. Obviously, there are yeah. you know, flick pass not being as as, as useful successful. as it had been. Yeah. yeah, it sometimes happens, doesn't it? Where a, a play like that only has twelve months worth of, of game in it, doesn't it? Like that, yeah, yeah, it gets found out. Now I'm guessing Merv Hobbs. For the goal uh, you are for best and fairest. Are you saying or goal uh, kicking? No, it wasn't. It was Mr. Football. It was Teddy Whitten uh, with 38. Best and fairest, who do you reckon? No pops. No. John Schultz. Schultzy. Schultzy. Oh, All right, are you going to do uh, night series now again? Yes. Perfect. All right, so, well, the night premiership. It's a good thing. We, it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, for those clubs who aren't making finals. That's yeah. it. I mean, we'll... Just for the supporters of these clubs and everything going on. So, again... Uh, Played uh, by the yeah the clubs who missed out on finals, um, 
and we had curtain raises played for the first time since um 57 and featured a round robin between schoolboy teams from Altona, Clayton, Middle Park, Newport, South Melbourne, West Altona and Williamstown. And in Newport won the inaugural Shell South Melbourne FC Junior Night Premiership Shield. <laughs> what a title. What a yeah, it's great, isn't it? Uh, so, let me run you through the games that we had in this uh, season. Again, all played at Lake Oval. Uh, so, the first game was South Melbourne versus North Melbourne. And we had North Melbourne running out the winners, uh, 32 to 65 there. We had Richmond playing Fitzroy next. Richmond coming out the winners, uh, 12-9-81 to 9-10-64. We had St Kilda Collingwood. Collingwood coming over the top there, uh, 69 to 112. And Footscray Hawthorne, Hawthorne winning 64 to 87. So taking us through to the semis there. What do you reckon? Crowds are sitting at around 11 and a half. Up to 13,500. Not, not bad. Not bad, for not bad for a Tuesday or a Friday night. In August and September, yes. Yeah. It's still a bit chilly. Oh, f- I tell you what, a Friday night at 8pm at Lake Oval for me right now would just <laughs> be perfect. Yeah. Uh, so moving us to the semi, so we've got North playing Richmond. Especially where you live. Yeah, that's what I mean. It'd just be a, just a, be a stroll. Every, you would be at every game. It'd be perfect. Um, so, yeah, North Richmond, and we had Richmond winning. North uh, Richmond almost leading the whole time. North took over in the third quarter, but then Richmond came back strong, winning 85 to 62. And then Collingwood Hawthorne. Uh, Hawthorne luckily didn't shame themselves here and ran out winners in a massive way, 121 to 49. So taking us to the grand final, we had Richmond and Hawthorne in front of 24,500 people on a Wednesday night. It was supposed to be on a Monday, but moved to a Wednesday uh, due to torrential, torrential rain, rain, of course. And uh, we've got Richmond here running out winners. Just good game here. Hawthorne's 9-6-60, not quite enough to get across the line for Richmond's 8-16-64. So a bit, uh, bit errant in front of goals there, but they got the job done. Um what what's good to mention here? We should say uh, Hawthorne's John Peck against Collingwood in the second game uh, in the semi final kicked seven goals and was the lead goal kicker of the series with twelve goals from his three matches. Nice. Uh, yeah, and that was. And they and they produced the football record for night games as well. They did. So yeah, there was something in the here about that. So they did do that in the round eighteen edition of the football record. It will be published for night matches and to assist patron, the list of players' names will be printed in larger type than usual. Because it's dark. Because it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Love it. So there's the night series. Excellent. All right, those consolations. So let's get to the real thing. Yeah, we come and see the real thing, as yeah. they say. Mm. Uh, so taking us up to fourth spot. The old Dark Blues. Uh, Carlton sitting there with uh, 13 wins, 5 losses and 112.9%. Coached again, of course, by Ken Hands. Captained by Graham Donaldson in his second year. Some debutantes with John Gill and Ken Greenwood. Their first win came in round two against Richmond, although Richmond bounced out to a 13-point lead early in the game. 
And by the main break, they were actually travelling like winners, but Carlton finally clicked as a team in the third quarter and with their defence on top, overhauled the Tigers to win by 10. Leo Brereton was the winner for Carlton against Richmond, kicking five goals in the process. Peter Falconer was an active rover and Ford who provided good support. John James, Sturge, Silvani and Bill Ark all played their part. In round four, Leo Brereton and Turkey Tom, don't forget Turkey, Turkey Tom, Tom, kicked three goals each as the Blues beat the reigning premiers, Hawthorne. Round five and six were losses to Essendon and Collingwood with the round six loss, Carlton's 1,200th VFL-AFL match. Wow. Mm. Round seven, on this Queen's birthday holiday Monday, the resurgent Blues caused a huge boil over by knocking off the undefeated ladder leaders Melbourne by 16 points at Prince's Park. Despite not kicking a goal in the first term, however, so quite interesting, thereafter Carlton's Rucks got on top in a five-goal to two third quarter set up one of their most important wins for the season. John Nichols rucked powerfully. Uh, Berkeley Cox was great. Falconer continued to provide play. Uh, and Silvani as well. So Silvani and Nichols really starting to click as a, a duo. Yeah. Round eight, constant rain swept across the grounds. But the Blues took on St Kilda. They overcome, overcame a poor first quarter. Took a slim nine-point advantage into the last term. The Saints man of the challenge, but wayward shooting cost them dearly. The Blues home by three points. Round 10 against... Fitzroy at Brunswick Street scores were level at 51 apiece when the final siren sounded. But play on the opposite side of the venue um, continued because the umpire didn't hear it. From the ensuing ball up, Carlton's Martin Cross punched the ball through for a rush behind and then the umpire heard it and blew his whistle. Carlton won by a point. Are you kidding? No. I thought this was... I thought they'd changed... The, how many times can this happen? Fitzroy did not protest the result. He did request that the Fitzroy Cricket Club install a new siren at the other end of the field, but the request was rejected. <laughs> we wonder why they're going to lose, you know, 36 of the next 37 games. Yeah. <laughs> Round 13, Carlton's winning run extended to seven straight after a clinical victory over 10th place Tigers at Princess Park. Turkey Tom with four. Um, Bruce Williams was one of Carlton's best and John James was doing his job at fullback. Uh, round 16, Carlton's brilliant winning run of nine came to an end with the Bombers beating them at Windy Hill. They bounced back in the best way possible. Turkey Tom kicked six in a match where they destroyed their traditional rivals, Carlton, by 42 at Princess Park. With the top four spots sewn up, they dropped their final round match against the Demons. Ah, okay. Well, that's good for us. Turkey Tom leading the goal kicking. Turkey Tom did lead the goal kicking with 62. Best and fairest? Nichols. Surge. Surge, there you go. There you go. a few times, so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's always someone. Yeah, you're always saying them. So then we're moving up to third place. We have the Mighty D's. Melbourne sitting in third with 14 wins, four losses, and a percentage of 113... Oh, sorry, 125.8%. So coached by Norm Smith, captained by Ron Barassi. Ah, mighty days. Just that's it. Just getting it done. Some some debutants now, some some players of, you know, leaving. Yeah. Uh, Barry Vag, Kerry Ratray and Ken Emsell. Oh, Kenny Emsell? Yeah. He was my maths teacher. There you go. In when I was in, in high school. There you go. Number ten for the Mighty D's. Did you talk about it much? No. You couldn't distract. No, he didn't. You couldn't distract the class by asking him about. I tried a lot, but okay. he, he, you know, he was, he was all over it. He was good. Nice. Uh, round one, Melbourne superior teamwork and ball handling helped them to a four-goal lead at the last change, and they held the Tigers goalless to open their season in the best way possible with a win. 
Round two was Jeff Tunbridge's 100th game. And Melbourne continued their winning start to the season by travelling to Geelong and holding off a last quarter fight back by the Cats. To return home with the four points, Barassi, Mann and Adams were the best. Then Melbourne got the revenge they were looking for in the Dogs, bundling them out. Who bundled them out of the yes. finals? Thrashing them by 59 points. Then after wins against Collingwood, North and South, the Demons were unbeaten on top of the ladder. Nice! Then they lost to the Blues and the Lions. <laughs> Frank Adams kicked the sealer against the Saints, who became who came home absolutely furiously. Uh, Frank Adams kicked the ceiling goal. Terry Gleeson collapsed during the game with what was initially thought to be a collapsed lung. Ooh. He was replaced by Les Mann in the last quarter. Jenkinson was replaced by Dawson. Um, and we're not sure what happened to, uh, to Gleeson, who collapsed. I assume he was okay. I hope so. Yeah. In round 11, they jumped the Hawks early at Glenferry Oval and held sway throughout the game. Laurie Mithen kicked fives. The Ds won by 16. In round 15, the Ds were in danger of dropping out of the four. And the Demons picked up an important win against one of them chasing one of the chasing pack, all but eliminating the Pies from finals contention, which you'd be happy with. Yes. Um, they did it despite only playing in bursts with good periods at the end of the first and second quarters and a match-winning burst in the third term. Mithen kicked another five. He's having a good, good season. It certainly right? is. And five goals is a lot for a uh, Smith, uh, Lens, uh, non Smith coach. It team. certainly is. Round 17, they beat the Swans to consolidate their spot in the four. And round 18, with their final spot wrapped up, the Demons went into the last game of the season playing for the double chance. They needed to beat fourth place Carlton. Ron Barassi was rested to freshen him up for the finals after several weeks of groin strain. Uh, they were also without Tazzy Johnson, Johnson, who had a fractured cheekbone. Cheekbone. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Ray God. Dawson and Terry Gleason who had the flu. So Gleason's back. You know he's got the flu now. He's his own sign. Any suspicion that the game would be hands-off exhibition was ended early when the sides put on a fierce start to the game. Fire went out of the game after half time though, and only five more goals were kicked. Carlton were better than the final margin of twenty-five points. Mm. So we did win. You won. It wasn't. But it wasn't enough to get us the double. It wasn't enough to get us the second chance. No. Yeah, because we were there, just not on percentage. Yeah, so looking at that. So we needed a good big win, I assume. Yeah. 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 And hoping Geelong lost. Yes. Which they did not. Which they did not, which puts them in second spot. It does. Uh, best and fairest for the Ds in 62, who do you think? Oh, Laurie Mithen had a cracker, didn't he? Laurie Mithen was our lead goal kicker with yeah. 37. Um, probably Barass. What time? Brass. Hassa man. Hassa, okay. The big Hass. Yes. Very nice. So that takes us to second spot on the ladder, as we just mentioned, with Geelong. Uh, we have them sitting with, again, 14 wins, four losses, but a much better percentage of 139.3, which is a very strong percentage, isn't it? Yeah. So coached by Bobby Davis, captained by John Yeats. Yeah, Yeats. Yates? Yates, Yates, Yates. Not sure. Anyway, huge debutante. Kaz is going to tell us about Polly Farmer. Ah, I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. They finally lured him over from the West after three Sandover medals and a few, uh, few premierships with West, West Perth. Um, I've been reading his book actually at the moment as well by Stephen Hawke. Fantastic. Hawk. Worth a read, yeah. Really interesting about his, how he grew up and. How he tri- how he went about playing the game, um, absolutely dominant. Anyway, Kaz, tell us a bit about him. So Graham Polly Farmer, one of the game's greats, who made a huge impact in a relatively short career in Victoria. So 101 games, 65 goals, 
Um, he raised in an orphanage uh, in WA. He honed his natural skills uh, of his game, despite the fact that his left leg was shorter than the right. As an eight-year-old, he practiced handballing through a partly open car window for hours on end. He was already built. He had already built a huge reputation in WA uh, for East Perth uh, before joining Geelong as a 27-year-old in 1962. Then, amidst the fanfare uh, of publicity, he severely injured his right knee in the opening moments of his debut. In the following year, he blossomed and finished second to the Skilton, to Skilton in the Brownlow. That's impressive. Um, he was one of the few men who um, it could be genuinely be said that he altered the style of the game as his spearing 30-meter handballs became a form of attack rather than a means of escaping from trouble. His method of leaping slightly earlier than opponents and getting a ride at boundary throw-ins fueled controversy, uh, but he was a master of ruck play and his clashes with John Nichols were legendary. Polly Farmer. All right, so pre-season, a reform ticket challenged the current board, and as the votes came in, some envelopes were being diverted, steamed open, and votes for the incumbents put into the fireplace. Oh, okay. The reform group thought they were a shoo-in, but they lost, believing that the committee had printed and filled in extra ballot papers. So everyone's cheating. Mm. Okay, great. Sounds like it, yeah. So a bit of turmoil there, although, you know, they've got all these big decisions that have been made, and they've got polypharmary and all this other stuff's happening. Um, pre-season, 10,000 people turned out to watch Polly Farmer in an intra-club match. Are you kidding? And folklore has it that what the crowd paid to get in was enough to actually recoup the money they paid. To get him across. Yeah. Love it. Round one was a disastrous start, though, um, for Polly Farmer against Carlton. He clashed with Donaldson and Sankey because John Nichols was a late minute out. Um, both with Carlton. So Farmer lost the opening knockout and the ball headed for the boundary. For his second ruck duel, he went flying for a hit out. Um, and he fell to the ground and there was a tangle of bodies and his knee gave out, his ACL. Um, he was moved to the forward pocket and he was, you know, was quiet for a little bit, but he recovered to kick four goals as the Cats overran the Blues. In the same game, Fred Wooler had his number torn from his jumper and stayed out in the game with no number. <laughs> the Cats won by 35, um, but this knee issue will plague Farmer for the rest of the season. Okay. So interesting that like his first game and Daryl Baldock's first game, big high-profile high recruits from other states, both injuring themselves. Both injuring, yeah. Um, after a loss to the Ds, the Cats had good wins over Hawthorne and then against Richmond. Um, and in that game, it was a case of the parent trap. Alistair and Stuart Lord. This is a really interesting story. Okay. Um, they had a 25-point win over the Tigers at Punt Road, but umpire Walter Andrew reported Alistair Lord, who was one of the Brownlow favourites. He reported him for striking Tiger Brian Maloney. At the ensuing hearing, Stuart Lord sensationally appeared to testify it had in fact been himself in the report and not Alistair, because they were twins. They were identical twins. This caused mass confusion, leading to the tribunal throwing out the case with both twins free to take the field against Collingwood the following week. <laughs> Genius! Uh, the controversy gained even more prominence later in the year when Alistair Lord robbed in to win the Brownlow yes. by nine votes, leading to allegations of a deliberate identity switch at the time. Well, Some, we- <laughs> some even suggested confusion on the part of the umpires had played a part in Alistair Lord's high vote tally. That's what I was about to say, yeah. With the men in white touted to have awarded him votes when in fact it was earned by his brother. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. So it's a Stuart, uh, Lord Brown though, I should say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Also in that game, Polly Farmer re-aggravated his knee and was taken from the field. He'd missed the next four games. Oh, gosh. Um, 
love that. That's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, they lost round five to the Pies, but then won three on the trot over North, Fitzroy and South. Farmer came back in round nine against Essendon, but just 14 minutes into the game, his knee gave again. The Cats lost and Farmer would miss the next eight games. Round 10 was a very close game against the Visiting Saints. Amid wild scenes, the Cats trailed by two points when in the dying seconds, John Yeats rose in the pack of players to take a strong mark. All the pressure was on him as he lined up to take his kick, but he slotted the captain's goal as the siren rang. Cats home by four. Nerves of steel, that's what you need. They smashed the doggies then by 71 at Witten Oval, or Western Oval then. Doug Wade with eight. Following their round 12 loss to the Blues, the Cats would win their remaining six games. Round 15 against the Tigers, Doug Wade kicked another eight in a demolition of the Tigers. In round 17, uh, in Polly Farmer's only other game for the season, uh, he broke down yet again. Ugh. Alistair Lord had a day out though against the Kangaroos, recording 37 kicks uh, compared to the 17 had by his three opponents. <laughs> Cats won by 31. Round 18 in that important game where they had to try and sew up that double chance. Yep. They kicked. They they had a crushing win over the Lions. Uh, they won by 78 points. Had 10 individual goal kickers. Wade only kicked one. Oh yeah. And then that's a cat season. That's a cat season. Clawing their way up the ladder. Uh, best and fairest. Um, oh, it's got to be Lord Stewart. No, it was, <laughs> it was Alistair Lord and league goal kicker, of course, Doug Wade, Doug Wade with sixty-eight. Yeah, so sixty-two for the season, I believe. So same as um. Well, no, because he played finals as well. So oh, okay, Wade kicked sixty-two for the season and sixty-eight by the end of the finals. Yes. And Turkey Tom kicked, I think, a few in the finals as well. And a few in the finals as well. Okay, so there you go. So that takes us to the very pointiest end of the ladder. And who haven't we talked about yet, Timothy? It's the Mighty Bombers. It is those same old, that same old Essendon sitting at the same old top of the ladder as hasn't been for a while, but, you know, getting getting back to where you belong. Finished top, you did. Did you win? I can't remember. No, don't Probably. Think you, don't think you did. <laughs> 57, we were up there. 16 wins, two losses, 130.4%. That is a great season, yeah, that is. Yeah, it really is. Not quite as good as 2000, but whatever. whatever. What can you do? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> coached by Johnny Coleman, captained by Jack Clark. Uh, tell us about the Bombers in oh, 62. We had a debutant by the name of Bill Leschke, which... Uh, We'll add into our pot of fun names. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the season opener against the Lions at Windy Hill, Ken Fraser was the standout bomber. And uh, in this game, Graham Bissell broke a bone in his wrist, becoming the first of 15 different bombers to injure themselves this season. He'd missed seven weeks. Um, going back to this game, though, Ron Evans kicked five goals but missed another several gettable shots. The bombers actually won their first seven games. That's a great way to start. Round three, they got the win against the Tigers. Uh Round four, the Bombers played the Saints in a lacklustre game. It was only 15 minutes of good football at the end of the game that got them over the line by four points. Uh, Essendon played Carlton, who provided mediocre opposition. The Bombers' goals came with ease at one stage. In the final quarter, they'd scored more than uh, double Carlton's. Resting Ruckman Ken Timms scored five goals in the forward line. Round six, they won by a goal against the Doggies in a gruelling last quarter. After scores had been level at three-quarter time, the Dons managed to nose ahead and hang on to their advantage. It was a thrilling last quarter with the Bombers' defence holding up. Their first loss came on a muddy Glenferry Oval to the Hawks, who, for some reason, recaptured some of that grand final form just for us. <laughs> Round 10, the Bombers took on the Demons. The Ds ran out to an early lead, but the Bombers were able to exhibit the courage to come back. 
They took on the physical side of the game while still reaching a high standard of skill. Alex Eppes and Bluey Shelton were able to get on top in the last quarter, and uh, they won by 18. Round 11, the Magpies challenged the Bombers with vigour and determination, but the Pies couldn't sustain it in the last quarter. The Bombers by 17 there. Evans, the start with three goals. I mean, these are all very similar games. Yeah. <laughs> reading it. Um, round 14, they were leading by five goals at three-quarter time against the Tigers. However, the Tigers came storming back in the final quarter and continued to bombard the goals, but the Bombers' defence held firm. Hugh Mitchell was the star in his 150th game. Bombers by a point. Um, after round 15, uh, there was a 52-point win over St Kilda. Coleman ordered eight players to rest up and not train. Oh. Bird, Blue, Clark, Davis, Fraser, Leak. Mackenzie and Shelton in preparation for this big game coming up against Carlton because he you know Carlton was a the big challenge he, he assumed interesting the game okay. was a bruising encounter with Bob Menzies in attendance um, Carlton's Valamis cleaned up Captain Jack Clark in the opening minutes breaking his nose uh, and Blue and Blue Shelton dominated as did Ken Fraser um, seeing the Bombers win a really hard fought match by nine points to give them you know a lot of hope going into the finals knowing we can knock them off yeah Round 17, they played the Doggies, and the Doggies needed to win to keep their season alive. In this game, only John Burt played reasonably well, as the Bombers trailed most of the day and lost by 37. When they came into the rooms, Coleman said to the players, and language warning, let that be a fucking lesson to you, and I hope to Christ you wake up and realise you're not as good as you think you are. He went on and on and on, um, but Hugh Mitchell... Star of the Bombers said it was the best thing that happened to them. Yeah. Bit of a wake-up call just before finals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, the, the week after, they barely scraped again over the line against uh, the bottom side, South Melbourne. They won by five points. There's actually rumours that Coleman was going to make a bit of a comeback. He'd been training with the side, um, and Hutchie, the reserves coach, was sure it was on the cards, but didn't eventuate. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Imagine if he'd just come back and slotted himself in the team to win a, pre- win a flag. Like Dick Reynolds in 51. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. Yes. So there we go. That takes us to the end of the uh, the home and away season. It did. I know you're hanging for this, Charlie. The yes. Coles goals. Yes. Come on. Geelong, 244. 244 goals. Yeah. Yep. Massive. Yep. Um and the winner of the Bunton medal was Bobby Skilton on 21 votes. And Moz, you're going to tell us a little bit more about this parent trap of a Brownlow medal. Ah, yes. The Brownlow Downlow. There have been few more dominant and decisive winners of the Brownlow medal than Geelong sentiment Alistair Lord, whose nine-vote victory in 1962 was one of the biggest in medal history. Uh, now, we've already spoken about his, uh, his twin brother and the incident that happened earlier in the season, uh, but nine vote victory was huge. Um, now, I'm paraphrasing from the Brownlow Medal book as well, a tribute to the greats of Australian football. Um, <clears throat> now, Lord Polden, 13 of the 18 home and away games this season. He scored 9-2 votes, which at the end of 2002 was a record in medal counting. Lord was recruited from Geelong, uh, to Geelong from Cobden in Victoria's Western District and played his first game in 1959. Um, he was 22 years of age, 141 days when he won it, playing at the centre, in the centre position. He won the medal after only 55 games. Other place getters were Ken Fraser, Kevin Murray and Ron Branton with 19 votes. Um, it was a remarkable season uh, and, as we know, and Alistair Lord would go on to further success uh, of the team variety, not so much the individual. 
That is uh, Alistair Lord, the winner of the 1962 Brownlow medal. She's going to enjoy that one. <laughs> that takes us to finals, Charlie. Let's do it. Let's talk finals. So we've got our first semi-final uh, played in front of 82,773 people between Melbourne and Carlton. Mm. So early stages of the match were extremely even and the biggest difference at any time during the match was only 14 points. That's it. We got at the end of the first quarter, one point. Second quarter, still one point different as well. Yeah, Melbourne's lead. No. Sorry. Um, but we led by one point at quarter time. We were down by one point at half time. Yeah, so by the third quarter, Melbourne led just. Yeah. Yeah. But John Nichols set the Blues alight at the beginning of the final quarter and the Blues attacked all quarter and hit the front. In the dying seconds, Jeff Tunbridge dropped the mark in front of goal. Mithin gathered and kicked a goal, but umpire Schwab called the ball back for the first of two ball-ups just before the siren went. Siren sounded the Blues one by two points. Mm-hmm. That's it. Coming off the ground, Jeff Tunbridge, who was a notoriously poor shot for goal, uh, he went up and apologised to Norm, saying, you know, I should have taken that mark. And Norm replied, it's okay, Tanner. It would have meant we'd lost by one point. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, ele- final score there, 11-10-76 to 11-12-78. Mm. Um, so Melbourne only managed one point for the entire final quarter, which is not great. No. Um, uh, so th- which takes us to the second semi. So we've got Essendon-Geelong. Uh, in front of 95,393. Great crowd for a semi. Absolutely. So um, Geelong were without a few of their stars as well. Doug Wade had injured his thigh muscle a few weeks earlier and was missing. And John Yates had a poisoned leg. Okay, as you do. Mm. A record crowd packed in, as you said. And the first bounce was delayed five minutes as the umpire and fans had to clear out hundreds of streamers from the goal square. Um Oh, really? Just, you know, all those streamers. Just in excitement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how you see those old games and there's streamers and telephone, bits of telephone paper cut up every Yeah, day. yeah, yeah. Um, game started at breakneck speed. During the game, Cats player John Fox cleared from the Bombers' goal and ran up the ground. He touched the ball down twice and hit the wing, where he ran for at least 30 metres before the umpire blew his whistle and called a halt to his big run. Fox had a rugby background. <laughs> Funnily enough. So after an even first half, the Bombers ran away in the second half to win by 46 points. Charlie Payne kicked four. Best on ground was Hugh Mitchell as Ruck Rover and Ken Fraser in defence. Uh, Bluey Shelton dislocated the middle finger on his right hand, but uh, there was hope he would be available. Yeah, so there, so there we go. So Essendon very far and away uh, comfortable win there, 105 to 59. Mm. So the prelim to see who will face Essendon in the grandest of finals is between Geelong and Carlton in front of 87,824 people. And uh, Geelong really wanted it. They really wanted it. Didn't they? So Geelong entered the contest without their star full forward, Doug Wade, still. However, the Cats were the better team in the first half and forged a three-goal lead at halftime. Then Carlton began to steadily peg the Cats back. They reduced the margin to two points at the final break. The last quarter was a tight affair, and this kicked off a beautiful was kicked off by a beautiful snap by Turkey Tom from the boundary line, giving the Blues the lead. Another goal to Williams extended the lead, but a quick response came from Wooler of the Cats. After 23 minutes of the final term, Geelong's Miller levelled the scores before Rice goal to put the Cats in front from a free kick earned from a high tackle. A minute later, Miller goaled again, and the Cats were two goals up as time on began. But the Blues kept coming. 
Gill kicked the behind, then Barry marked in Geelong's goal square to stop a promising attack. Carlton got back to level, and Johnny James had a chance to win the game for the Blues. He had a shot from about 50 metres out, and it sails just out of bounds, about a metre from the point post as the siren goes. Oh. First drawn preliminary final in VFL history. Yeah. So we do it all over again, they say. Now, before you get to that, in the meantime, Essendon was like, we can't Two weeks go. off, yeah. We three weeks. Three weeks between playing games. So they organised a scratch match to keep up their fitness. They called Melbourne, who were training still for it. They were doing a trip to Tasmania. They organised a scratch match for the Thursday. 6,000 fans uh, showed up at the MCG to watch two teams play at a draw, which was a good workout for both teams. Nice. Yeah, thanks, Melbourne. Yeah, that's all right. Look, if we can't have it, at least, you know, maybe we can help you. Uh, So the second prelim, the prelim replay, uh, again between Geelong and Carlton, but in front of 99,203 people this time. Uh, And again, Geelong came out flying. Oh, this this is a battle, these two games. Um, Geelong took a gamble by playing star forward Doug, Doug Wade, and their faith was rewarded. He booted six goals. After a tight first half, Geelong led by a point at halftime that Carlton rallied to be nine points up at three-quarter time. Wade kicked the first two goals of the final quarter to reduce the Blues' lead to one point. Both defences were on top and scoring was limited to points until Sutherland goal to give Geelong a two-point lead with 23 minutes gone in the term. About 27 minutes gone, John James darted out of the pack and kicked an unanswered, an answering goal for the Blues to regain ascendancy before a long bong, before the controversy of this game. Uh, there's a long bomb to the goal, to the teeth of goal, which was marked by Doug Wade, 30 metres out directly in front. Mm-hmm. He kicked six goals, one for the day, and looked ready to kick another. Um, he took the mark, was going back to, to take his shot, and umpire Jack Irving stunned the Geelong supporters and delighted Blues fans, signalling a free kick to Carlton fullback Peter Barry. For? For holding. Here, here's a picture here of this the incident. So you can see Doug Wade in front, kind in of front. arms back... Against Barry, yep. Um, but then, and then he puts his arms forward and takes, takes, the, the takes a clean mark. But you can also see, you can clearly see in that second frame as well, Barry hanging on, hanging on. Yeah, he's holding the back so of him. If anyone, it should have been a free kick to to Wade by what I'm seeing. So as Peter Barry went back, he took his kick. The siren sounded, ending the game, and the terraces erupted in a mixture of fury and elation. How can you call that? Yeah. Afterward, Irving explained what he had seen. He'd seen Barry, Wade hold Barry out of the contest very early by reaching back and taking hold of his shorts, thus preventing him from fairly contesting the mark. He had no hesitation in awarding the free by, for holding the man in one of the bravest and most controversial umpire decisions in finals history. Umpire Jack Irving was applauded by the experts for his decision, it says here. Yeah. Of course the VFL is going to back it up. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And it's good that we can kind of see photos, like there's videos of this. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. We can see what's going on. So, so yeah, so we've got a grand final between Essendon and Carlton. And Carlton are a bit of a fairy tale story. They've scraped into fourth. Yeah. They've beaten Melbourne by what, two points? Two points. Then drawn with Geelong and then beaten them by... By five. So they are on a bit of a fairy tale run here. They certainly are. And what's going to happen in this grand final? Will that fairy tale be uh, be finished off with mm. the way you know we hear it in front of ninety eight thousand three hundred eighty five people? Should we go and speak to the captain? We should. Let's have a chat to Jack Clark, shall we? Good 
G'day, Jack Clark. Welcome to our show. Congratulations on today. Well, thank you, fellas. So I must say it feels pretty good to be standing here today as a, as a premiership captain talking to you lot. And uh, it's a case of fourth time lucky for you, Jack. Yes, that's right. I, I was lucky enough to come into a great Bombers team in the early 50s, uh, but we went down to Geelong in that 51 grand final, and then we had two shots at that champion Melbourne team in 57 and 59, and we couldn't get over the line. So to win today is an absolute relief. Uh, joy, yeah, but, uh, but relief. Uh, so, Jack, can we take you back to the start of last season when the football world was thrown into chaos uh, because Dick Reynolds was replaced as coach? Uh, you were part of that circus. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, as you know, I, I also threw my hat into the coaching ring, although I, I must admit I never really thought I was a chance. Uh, but it was a big change, certainly, for Coley to come in and replace Dick. Dick had been coach of mine for, what, 10 seasons, so... Uh, He'd been at the club since the early 30s. He was a legend of the, of the club and, uh, look, it was a big change, but we as players had faith in the club, uh, making the right decision. Sometimes uh, change needs to be made, as you know, and I think today shows that the decision in the end uh, was the right one. Now, you boys finished seventh last year and then have surprised the competition this year by finishing right at the top of the ladder. Uh, what was the biggest reason, do you reckon, for that change in fortune? Well, we had a whole season getting used to a new coach, uh, so this year it really clicked for us. And you did all this with so many injuries. We did. Uh, the injury gods were cruel to us this year, but it uh, meant we had to change and adapt, and I think that put us in good stead for the finals. Um, and Jack, can you tell us a little bit about that big hit in the Carlton game in round 16? Yeah, that was a big, big game. I got a fair hit in that game, gave me a good fair hit. But uh, you know what, Coley kept that in the back of his mind, uh, knowing we might come up against them again. So he wanted to make sure we could fight fire with fire. Now, Jack, before we have a chat about finals, can you talk to me about that round 17 match against the Doggies? They beat you by just over six goals and uh, Johnny Coleman had some choice words for the team, apparently. Uh, well, I wasn't playing in that game, but it was it was very lacklustre. And if we wanted to challenge for the cup, we, we knew we would need to lift. Uh, that loss was certainly a wake-up call for us. Probably the best thing that happened to the team, to be honest. So, although you barely beat the Wooden Spooners the next week, uh, we heard there were rumours of Coleman making a comeback. Yeah, that would have been interesting. It, it was an empty threat, but uh, some of the young blokes, I think, thought he was uh, telling the truth. <laughs> Ah, yes. Uh, so you got over the Cats in the semi uh, and then had to wait three weeks to play again? Yeah, we didn't really expect to have to wait that long to play again. Uh, Carlton and Geelong played those two epic matches, but we knew we couldn't sit idle for, for another week, so Coley was good. He helped organise a scratch match against Norm Smith and the Demons. And how was that? Yeah, it was a bit weird playing a scratch match at the MCG on a Thursday in September in front of a few thousand fans. It felt, felt a bit strange, but the Demons took it, took it pretty seriously and it gave us the match fitness that we needed. Now, so Colin got through to take you on today. An up-and-coming team, a uh, bit of a fairy tale story. Uh, how did you guys prepare? Well, after that scratch match, we knew we were good to go and, and we knew that Carlton would be exhausted after three tough games, so we just planned to run them off their legs. And Jeff Leake played a big role in stopping John Nichols today. How important was he? Hugely important, yeah. Um, so you probably know that on the Thursday night at training, uh, he badly twisted his ankle and was considered very doubtful to play. In fact, even half an hour before the game today, he had to pass a fitness test. Ah, uh, mate, you've got to tell us more than that, Jack. Right, uh, yeah. So Jeff had pain-killing injections in his ankle and was already dressed in his playing gear, ready for the game. The test was to kick a medicine ball, if you can believe, uh, while the selectors assessed how well he did. I saw what happened. Uh, so Jeff grimaced, 
somewhat after his first timid kick and then uh, he was requested to kick the ball a bit harder. So the second kick was somewhat harder but the selectors still weren't convinced. So he was requested to kick the ball as hard as possible otherwise he wasn't going to be in the side. So Jeff gave the ball a solid kick and was declared fit to play. But uh, here's one thing guys, the selectors weren't aware that Jeff was actually kicking with his non-injured leg. <laughs> That's an incredible insight. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, so back to the match. So you won the toss, and after a Carlton free kick to start the game, the ball was pretty much down your end. Uh, John Burt slotted the first one through. Yeah, it was a quick start and a ripper goal. Um, his opponent was slow to react, and he actually ripped his pants. Yeah, well, you guys seem to be breaking free for much of the quarter, and you raced to a six-goal lead there, um, having 11 scoring shots to two. Everything just seemed to be going right for you. Yeah, well, as I said, uh, we had rested our legs, used them to our advantage, and being first to the ball really gave us some, so many opportunities. Now, Cullen did make some inroads in the second quarter. They held you to only one goal. Yeah, that was probably their best play of the day. Those two goals they kicked in time on did give us a bit of a scare, to be honest. Uh, probably the scare we needed, though, to, so that we went into the sheds at halftime knowing we were really involved in a, in a fiery contest. Now, you came out red hot after that, though. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say red hot. The first two goals certainly helped, but we couldn't quite shake the blues. And John Nichols was lifting. He was, yeah. He looked terrific. Took a great mark, kicked a goal, although Bluey, Bluey Shelton claims he got a fist on that ball, but uh, the umpire gave it to Big Nick. Now, your goals dried up somewhat for the rest of that third quarter. Yeah, look, we seemed too cramped in our forward line. No space. We just couldn't open up the play. A 20-point lead at three-quarter time, probably not enough of a gap to let the team relax. Not at all. Now, it was. Uh, would you call the last quarter a desperate affair? Definitely. Uh, a lot of spite seemed to exist between these two teams. Russell Blues seemed to cop it more often than anyone else, though. Uh, but the Bombers still had zip while the Blues were running out of theirs. Yeah, we did. Three more goals really helped us to hold on for the win. Did you realise you had the win when uh, John Burt kicked that long goal? That one put us almost five goals up, and I think from then on we, we started to relax. We, we knew we were close. So three goals to one gave you the win in the club's 11th Premiership. It was a great feeling when that bell went. Now, so we spoke earlier about uh, Jeff Leake's role today. Who else was uh, best on ground? Well, Hugh Mitchell was a star, uh, and I actually have the stat sheet in front of me here. He had almost 20 kicks for the day. John Bird had 23, and uh, look at that. Uh, I even had 25 kicks, three marks, two handballs. Uh, maybe I was best on the ground. Well, you were definitely amongst the best, Jack. How do you think the game might have gone if there hadn't been a draw and Carlton didn't have to play that extra week? I think the result would have been no different. We were primed for today, really. Um, we led from pillar to post, and all of, although Carlton are a great side, and they are... Um, and they've proved they can fight back uh, and match it against the best, such as you know Geelong and Melbourne. We never doubted ourselves today, and, and we played a great game of football. You know, uh, we deserve to be the 1962 premiers. Yeah, mate, absolutely, couldn't agree more. Uh, anything else you'd love to add there? No, nah, just one thing. See the bombers fly up, up. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Thanks all. Okay, so some stats from that game, Charlie. Yes, okay. Uh, goals, Essendon, Burt 4, Clark 2, Mitchell 2, Payne 2, Johnson, Leake and Timms with 1. 
Carlton's goals, Williams three, Nichols two, Cross, Donaldson, Greenwood with one each. Best for Essen was Jack Clark, John Burt, Barry Davis, Russell Blue, Hugh Mitchell, Alex Eppis, and Jeff Leake. Um, and just a final note here as well. Yeah. Essendon remains, I think, the only league side to have beaten all the other finalists in all meetings, both home and away, and finals. In the year. all meetings. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but when uh, yeah, at, at this point and definitely up until the 90s, I believe. Mm. Yeah. Um, so other winners we have under 19s: Geelong defeating Richmond, 71 to 57. In the reserves, the Doggies beat the Saints and the McClellan Trophy went to Geelong. Oh, okay. So, let's get to some retirees before we wrap <sighs> this bad boy up. Always a sad time. So, we have, and cue that sad music, Ron Branton of Richmond, 170 games, 171 goals. Some big Melbourne names here, so get ready to get, the, get those tissues out, Charlie. <laughs> Laurie Mithen, 108 games, 17 goals, five flags. Jeff Tunbridge, 117 games, 24 goals, three flags. Clyde Laidlaw, 124 games, 58 goals. Um, I guess he won some flags. I haven't written here. <laughs> Terry Gleeson, 100 games, 27 goals, two flags. Jeff Case, 123 games, 34 goals, four flags. Trevor Johnson, 118 games, six goals, four flags. Ridiculous. So th- these are losing quite a, a few more players, but you know. You, you look at the fact that these have only had two 300 game players. Yeah. Like all these champions. 120. Didn't play that many games. Yeah, that's like they it. They played a few seasons. They're like, oh, yeah, no, we've won a few flags. And yeah, well, what else are we going to do? Just more money in the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? And it, at this period, it does make sense, doesn't it? Because it's like, well, you've you've ticked all these boxes. Yeah. You're not. You're not. What's the difference between having five flags and six flags? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, Owen Abrahams, Fitzroy, 232 games, 26 goals. Jeff Leake. 191 games, 98 goals, and one flag in his very last game. Oh, how good's that? What a way to finish. Um, Neil Roberts of St Kilda, 169 games, 40 goals, one brown low. Bud Anand, St Kilda, 106 games, 100, 106 games, 11 goals. Ron Branton of Richmond, 170 games, 171 goals. I already read him out, actually. What, what a year to retire from St Kilda. Just, mm. just and, quite... Al Montello of North Melbourne, 170 game, 107 games, 25 goals. There you go. Yeah, indeed. So let's wrap this bad boy up, shall we? Let's do it. So, Premiers, I want to hear you say it. Essendon. Yeah, well, yes, you do. Yeah. Um, Brownlow medalist. The Brownlow medicine, medal, medicine. The Brownlow medalist was Alistair Lord, or was it Stuart? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, as we've said, the leading goal kicker was Doug Wade, sixty-two. Yes, for the season. Coleman, sixty-eight. Sixty-eight in the finals. finals. Wooden spoon. The wooden spoon was South Melbourne. Yeah, with their fifth wooden spoon. So oh. the first one they have won since nineteen thirty-nine. Um, highest score was Sydney Sydney Swans the South Melbourne Swans 22-11-143 um, best name options I've run past Kaz oh yes here. Here's, here's the options Neville Forge Jim Pumphrey Colin Sleep Bob Beatty Pat Trethowen Wally Hillis Terry McGee Stuart McGee Trevor Castlehow Ralph Rose Des Steele Ike Isley John Knox Bill Harrington Murray Zushner Niles Becker Barry Vag, Kerry Ratray and Bill Leschke He's gone with Terry McGee of, I believe it was South Melbourne. Yes. His reasoning being... This would be great. Yeah. 
Uh, Real, Terry McGee for having a name that sounds like it's made up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. Um, so, grand final premiership tallies as of 1962. We have Collingwood with 13. Mm. Essendon with 11. Sick. Melbourne with 11. Carlton with 8. Fitzroy with 8. Geelong with 5. Richmond with 5. South Melbourne, 3. Hawthorne, 1. Footscray, 1. Damn that alphabetical order. We should still be on top of you. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up 62. There you go. Yeah, another good year. Another good year. Another good season. Controversial. Love there, that. There. Interesting yeah. there, though. Changing it around. Yes. Both both previous grand finals not making finals. Yeah. Keeps things very interesting. And the 60s continues to be like that. Yeah. Right across. Um, now, we're going to hand over to our new Around the Grounds expert. Oh, yes. So, we didn't. this kind of happened at the end of recording last episode. We didn't have time to take it, uh, to talk about it, but... Big Red is very busy. Uh, he's going to be with us every every now and then to talk about the state carnivals. That's what he's going to move to. Um, but didn't have time to do all the research around um, the around the grounds his roundup. So um, that has been taken over by Joey. So Joey is doing around the grounds now. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Joey. So we'll hand over to him as we say goodbye for now. As we say goodbye. Too. Thank you again for listening. Well into the swinging 60s now. Indeed. Uh, and thoroughly enjoying every minute of it, Timmy. Indeed. I know there's, there's more on the way for Bombers and Demons supporters as well. Yeah, so we can enjoy it. It was just delightful. Uh, and as you said, great to actually have some footage and some and some photos of, of these interesting and controversial decisions that yeah, we're seeing, which is absolutely. great. So I hope you guys out there are, st- are still enjoying and are... Uh, Share us with your mates if they've, you know, they need something to listen to as they run or, you know, even, you know, bounce a ball around. Who knows? Yeah. Whatever you're doing out there. Painting. Long, long car drives. Long car drives, yeah. exactly. All those sorts of things. Stuck in traffic. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, share it around. Every time someone else listens, you know, we're sharing the knowledge and you can enjoy the great times your team has had in the past if they're not having a great time at the moment. Uh, okay. So until, until 63. Hooroo. Well, welcome back to Around the Grounds. Let's get 1962 underway. Let's start with VAFA with the 81st season of the association, continuing with the two-division system that commenced last year. Keith Burns, the former Collingwood Rover, collected the JJ Liston medal at his first season at Sandringham. This, uh, this year at Sandringham, Burns had a stunning year, but sadly missed out in the grand final due to injury. His teammate, Bill Bryan, led the association on goal kicking with 73 big ones and an additional, and, and additional six during finals. Sandringham were hoping for a trifecta when they met ladder leaders Moorabbin on grand final day at St. Quarter Cricket Grand. After being nine points up the half, Moravin took control of the third and took a 44-point lead into the last change. After, after being scored from the third, many were riding off Sandringham to win, but coming out of the blocks fast, Sandy kicked eight of the last nine goals to win by a point for the second flag. To add further salt to injury, the Moravin seconds played in the Kerner Racing Grand Final and sadly lost to Coburg by a point. In Division 2, Dandenong took control of the grand final against Preston, winning by 10 goals. 
Camberwell forward Ron O'Neill led the Gold King with 59 goals, and Perrin's Gary Butler won the Division 2 Best and Fairest. By winning the flag, Dandenong replaced 10th place Maud Yalik in Division 1 for the following year, and the promotion relegation challenge game was between Perrin and 9th place Northcote, where Northcote uh, won comfortably by 77 points. Still in Victoria, 1962 was the competition's 71st season. The Jane Woodrow medalist was won by Ian Turnbull with 20 votes. Old Paradians J.M. Tudor led the goal kicking with 47. And facing off in both their first grand finals, Old Paradians beat Melbourne High School. Old boys. Across the border in South Australia, the 83rd season of Sandford football saw the McGarry medalist being won by West Australian, sorry, West Adelaide 61 Premiership wingman Kenneth Houston with 22 votes. The lead goalkeeper was Magpies forward Rex Johns, King 76 goals. West Adelaide was facing minor premiers Port Adelaide at Adelaide Oval for the grand final, trying to defend the 61 flag in front of 43,500 supporters. In a tight tussle between both clubs, the Magpies held off West Adelaide by three points to win their 21st flag, coming off their 31st minor premiers. Now let's head across to Nullarbor. With 1962 being the Waffles' 78th season, we welcome back the Burton name to the Kick the Kick podcast and a first appearance in Around the Grounds. With Hayden Bunton Jr. following his father's rare, or his father's footsteps and a rare father-son feat winning his only Sandover medal in his second season as Swans, as Swans District Captain Coach with 22 votes. Subiaco's legendary forward, Austin Robertson Jr. kicked 89 goals to win the Bernie Naylor medal. In front, and in front of 46,500 at Subiaco Oval, a Bunton Jr.-led Swans district dominated East Fremantle and won by three goals, going back-to-back, collecting their second flag. Last year's San Diego medalist East Fremantle's Ray Sorrell won the Simpson medal, the third player to do so in a losing side. In Tassie, the 83rd season saw North, North Hobart winning their 20th flag and going back-to-back against Clarence at North Hobart Oval by 15 points. Finally, in the top end, the 62-63 season saw Darwin pick up their 13th flag over St. Mary's by five goals. St. Mary's facing back-to-back grand final losses. Waratah's captain Ted Cooper picked up the Nichols medal for league's best and fairest, and he was actually never reported during his long and industrious career. Thank you for listening, and speak soon. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.